Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we do so from an authentically Catholic perspective. As always, our guest today will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We have a treat today as we take the life and work of a neurosurgeon into hand and examine it closely with Dr. Paul Camerata, Chief of Neurosurgery at a large hospital system in Kansas City. Tom, this show represents our first and what I hope is a long series about Catholic physicians, how those physicians selected their specialties, what led them to the decision to be that kind of doctor, what was the training like for them, what's it like to walk a mile in that particular doctor's shoes. Take, for instance, neurosurgery, our guest. I thought I wanted to be a neurosurgeon until I found out those are some of the smartest guys in the room. You wanted to be a neurosurgeon? I did for a couple of hours. <laughs> when it became clear that that wasn't going to happen, I moved on. You know, for me, it was never the intellectual rigor, but it's how many hours they had to be awake every week in the hospital. I just physically couldn't do it. See, my, you went to a different kind of medical school. In my medical school, we all went down to the gym in the basement. And if you could bench press your weight, you went into orthopedics. And if you couldn't, you went into OBGYN. That's how I ended up in my specialty. But we're going to spend time with physicians from all sorts of medical specialties across the spectrum, some of them common that listeners hear all the time. Some of them will actually be pretty obscure. Some of our listeners may not even realize there was a specialty of that. And we're going to learn from each specialty how it's changed through the years, how technology changes have changed that specialty. And what I think will be one of the most interesting things is sort of what does the near and the, and the long horizon look like for that given specialty. And I think one thing that's going to be interesting to listeners is we'll also discuss the most common things they treat. And so you'll get insight into some of the most common things in a number of different areas that may impact your life and those that you love. I know my friends and patients will often ask me, I'm experiencing this, so what kind of physician should I see? A very good one. <laughs> a, good one. <laughs> a Catholic one. Yes. Uh, but that information is not always, not always readily available, particularly about the Catholic part. But speaking of that, one of the things we'll try to get from each of our guests in this series is, you know, what, what is it to be a Catholic member of your specialty? What does a, a Catholic physician in your specialty look like compared to, to others? And most importantly, we really we want to hear from you, our listeners. You know, what medical specialties do you find that are most interesting? Uh, what would you like to ask, say, for instance, a pediatric gastroenterologist if you had a chance to have a cup of coffee with one? And what medical specialist has played maybe the greatest role in your life uh, or the life of your family. So, Tom, remind our listeners, if they want to get us questions, how's the best way for them to go about doing that? Well, you can find our contact information on the Redeemer Radio uh, website. So that's redeemerradio.com forward slash doctor. And on there, it has a form where you can contact us through email. And we have taken show suggestions that we've actually used. We answer all the questions we get uh, in the show. So if you contact us, we'll take your uh, recommendations seriously. We also have a Facebook page. Uh, as I am an antediluvian doctor, antediluvian doctor, that means before the flood, I am not on Facebook. <laughs> but Dr. Stroud here built a practice through Facebook. So he knows much more about it than I do. <laughs> so, Tom, I often say to my kids, uh, when I thought they were doing something and they were making it a lot harder than it has to be, I would yell out and say, hey, it's not like this is brain surgery. Uh, but with our first guest in this series uh, that we're going to introduce in just a minute, it actually is brain surgery, isn't it? He's a neurosurgeon. Uh, and as I said, that's what I thought I wanted to be until I figured out he had to be the smartest guy in the room for that. Well, and... Uh you know, the two things that they usually talk about when you are, you know, pretending that something is so hard or is easy to do, it's not either brain surgery or rocket science. And then I guess if you put them together, the really hard thing would be rocket surgery. But I've never <laughs> met a rocket surgeon. But I remember this anecdote I heard recently that there was uh, this class of ballroom dancing, these married couples. And this one guy just wasn't getting it. And the head teacher said to him, look, dude, this isn't uh, rocket science. And the guy immediately looked at him and said, you are absolutely right that it's not rocket science. I am a rocket scientist, and this is much more difficult. So, <laughs> so things that are difficult for us really vary. You know, brain surgery to someone who's trained in it isn't a big deal versus somebody with two left feet, for instance. 
Yeah, so what do neurosurgeons or brain surgeons do? And it's not really fair to call them brain surgeons because some neurosurgeons don't operate on the brain at all. But in general, neurosurgeons diagnose and assess and perform surgical procedures to treat all kinds of disorders of and damage to the nervous system, whether that's inside the brain or outside of the brain. So they work on the central nervous system, the brain, and they work on the spinal cord, and they work in the peripheral nervous system. Which which surprised me. I found out that one of my classmates from medical school, who must have an incredible tolerance for pain, did two residencies. He did orthopedics, then he did neurosurgery, and he specializes in surgery of the peripheral nerves, the nerves beyond the spinal cord. I didn't know there was such a thing. Sounds like he had too much free time on his hands. Oh, my goodness. So in the United States, neurosurgery is a pretty competitive specialty, and it represents really less than 1%, closer to 0.5% of all practicing physicians in the country. There's about 3,689 neurosurgeons in the U.S. to treat our population of about 300 million. So interestingly, that's about one neurosurgeon for every 84,000 people. Uh, So there's not many of these guys and gals just walking around. I wonder why that might be the case. It is grueling, and we're going to hear about that from uh, Paul Camerata, uh, but only about 160 neurosurgeons every year graduate. And just thinking of my specialty in dermatology, which is small, we're about 1%. Uh, they're about half a percent, and we have about 320 graduated a year. So there are half as many neurosurgeons, and believe me, they put in a whole lot more hours uh, in the hospital. And those numbers are going down, too. Fewer neurosurgeons Why are finishing that? their residencies. They start them, they change to something else. Ah. The, the, the time commitment is excessive compared to other medical specialties. So it involves college, of course, and then four years of medical school, and then a minimum of seven years of training following medical school and residency. But most neurosurgeons go on and pursue fellowships, which are additional years after those seven years after medical school. Like our guest tonight is a vascular neurosurgeon. Yeah, amazing. I can't wait to hear more from him. And he actually Uh, has a family. I, I wonder, how do these guys have time to have families? Yeah, and let's face it, it's a pretty stressful job that just isn't for everyone. More fun facts. You know, we're experiencing an aging uh, as a country of the neurosurgical workforce. Uh, Almost half of the neurosurgeons are 55 years or older. Now, frankly, I find that to be rather young uh, (laughs) since that's a year younger than I. But uh, from a workforce perspective, if half of the physicians are starting into their fifth and sixth decades, that poses or could pose a problem for the future. And young young men and women are not exactly flocking to neurosurgery as a career. Neurosurgery practices have been around for a long time. I think it's pretty interesting from a historical perspective. It's been said that the Incas uh, performed a procedure known as, uh, and we'll have to ask our guest about this, trepanation, uh, which is just a genteel way to say they drilled holes in people's skull to let evil spirits out or to treat hematomas and things like this. And that was done as early as 4,000 years ago. How did they even know to do it? Now, if they were treating a bleed on the brain, that is curative. We still do it that way, but with better anesthesia. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Can you imagine that patient-physician uh, conversation 4,000 years ago? <laughs> hold still. I'm going to punch a hole in your head. Trust me, I'm a doctor. Mm, not so much. <laughs> I'm not so sure it would work that well. So a couple of famous neurosurgeons, and we've actually mentioned Dr. Harvey Cushing on our show before because he discovered, as you might guess, Cushing's disease. Uh, but really a more contemporary pretty famous neurosurgeon is Dr. Ben Carson. Uh, He's currently the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development and was a previous presidential candidate. He's one of the more really, you might say, Hollywood neurosurgeons out there. He's actually a pediatric neurosurgeon, so he did additional training after his neurosurgery residency uh, studying conditions that affect children. And he became very famous by being the first neurosurgeon to successfully separate conjoined twins joined at the back of the head. Uh, And he actually also performed the very first neurosurgical procedure on a fetus still inside the mother's womb, among some other pretty exciting things. And if you want to watch, there's a a great movie about that surgery for craniopagus twins where they were connected at the brain. Uh, It's called Gifted Hands. 
and uh, about his life. And it's beautiful showing that when he was younger, growing up with a single mother and, uh, and a brother, uh, they were allowed to watch one TV show a week. And the TV <laughs> show was at the time College Quiz Bowl. Oh. It was College Bowl, he, he and his brother. And they were at the top of their classes, studied hard, even though their mother could not read wow. when they were going to school. Yeah, his story of sort of self-reliance and, uh, and incredible uh, hard work is really, is really motivating for anybody. And, and just how he figured out how to safely separate these twins so they could live uh, lives individually when it had been tried multiple times before unsuccessfully. It's a, it's a heartwarming story and shows the human side of uh, a, a justly famous neurosurgeon. You know, it's a tough life, as I think our guest will, will point out. I remember when I was in residency at the University of Virginia, the neurosurgery residency program there, they liked to brag that a resident had never made it through their program and remained married. They seemed to think that that was a badge of courage, that your marriage fall apart during the training part of your career. Uh, I hope it's different that way back at UVA. Oh. haven't been back in many years. I don't know. Oh, what, a, what an awful measure of um, success or commitment. So now we've got everybody's attention focused on brain surgeons. It seems like an appropriate time to move on to our medical trivia question of the night, don't Which you think? Which will unsurprisingly deal with neurosurgeons. <laughs> so this one is under the category, if you're playing Jeopardy at home, of a 1960s television series. So what early medical television series featured a neurosurgeon and had an opening scene that included a hand writing five symbols on a chalkboard? For you young people that don't know what a chalkboard is, ask your parents. <laughs> but on the chalkboard, these five symbols represented man, woman, birth, death, and infinity. What was the name of the show, which was also the name of the neurosurgeon? You're going to have to wait till the end of the show to find out. But be back with us after this break with Dr. Paul Camerata, a real-life, living and breathing neurosurgeon, here on Dr. Doctor from the stations of Redeemer Radio. And we're back with our special guest today, who's Dr. Paul Camerata. He's professor and chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of Kansas Medical Center. He has many interests, cerebrovascular neurosurgery, brain tumors, surgery for epilepsy, surgery for the base of the skull, and spine surgery. He did his undergrad work at Stanford Medical School at University of Kansas, a residency at University of Minnesota, and then a fellowship also in Minnesota, cerebrovascular and skull-based surgery. He has three children, oversees Catholic Medical Association outreach to medical students in Kansas City, and is very active with the March for Life annually. Dr. Paul Camerata, thank you for being with us again on Dr. Doctor. Thank you, guys. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for asking. Oh, you're welcome. Tom, I was listening to your introduction, and it occurred to me that Paul is that guy we were talking about, the smartest one in the room. That's the reason we're not neurosurgeons. No, well, he, not, he, not really. No. <laughs> just a carpenter, right, Paul? Just, that leaves exactly. the engine running. That, that's it. That, that's uh, what you actually yeah. said, I think, on the last show where we interviewed you on the, <laughs> oh, on, no, on the mind, no, no. brain. Uh, we remember a few things. So anyway, to me, neurosurgery is always the most grueling possible medical specialty somebody could choose. What is it that led you to make that profound commitment to go into neurosurgery? When we were first-year students in uh, medical school, we took a neuroanatomy class. And being able to dissect the brain, you know, what uh, I think we talked about last time, what I believe to be the seat of the soul, if there were such a thing, <laughs> to, to be able to... Yeah, to be able to, to look at the brain, to operate on the brain, uh, really where, where somebody lives, you know, uh, that, I, I think that that was what, uh, what caught me. I caught the bug during neuroanatomy. And then uh, following that, I just was so intrigued by the fact that it was a vast frontier. Everything, you know, we, we knew so little, relatively speaking, about the brain compared to the kidney or the heart. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Paul, I always wonder, and I think about my own specialty selection, it sounds like the content of the specialty uh, sort of grabbed you. What role did mentors or, you know, professors that were also in neurosurgery, how did that play a part in your decision? Well, that was huge. You know, back in those days, we had clinical correlations where the professor would get up with a patient, you know, oh, in front of the class. Good. You remember that? Yeah. We didn't have that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, and so he he showed. This was uh, Professor Charles Brackett at uh, KU Med School. Got up and had a patient with a uh, syringomyelia, which is you know a cyst in the center of the spinal cord, and it was just magical how he was able to define and predict what it was by the patient symptoms. So he had this patient in front of us, you know, medical school class of two hundred plus uh, kids. And, uh, you know, went through a history and an examination and, the, you know, the beauty of being able to figure out exactly where this lesion was in the body, you know, in the spinal cord, simply from an examination. I think that's kind of what, what got it. I have to admit that in our class at Mayo Med School, we loved our uh, neuroscience course first year because they taught us how to localize the lesion. Where is the problem based on the exam? And, and that was fascinating, I have to admit. But you took it. Uh, several steps further. So what was your training like after medical school? So after med school, uh, a neurosurgery residency now is seven years. Back when I did it, it was most of the time six. There were a few programs that were seven and uh, and then did a fellowship after that. So it was uh, it was tough. I was just newly married. I got married literally a couple of weeks after med school and then uh, started uh, residency where, you know, we spent uh, the first year, uh, things are a little different now. When I was uh, an intern, I spent three months on every other night call. So <sighs> you would come in at six in the morning round, stay in the hospital until the next day at 6 p.m., you know, then go home, sleep, eat, and then come back the next morning for another 36-hour stretch. So it was you know, for three months. So it was, it was pretty How often did you get to spending. sleep on those nights in the hospital? Uh, so we did get some sleep and, you know, I, I'd say, uh, uh, we would get, uh, you know, a few hours probably in, in between a whole bunch of uh, awakenings and phone calls on the beeper. I can remember spending Christmas Eve a couple of times during that stretch with my wife in the hospital. She, we had our call rooms and we Made a put up a little Christmas tree and nativity <laughs> set in one of the rooms. <laughs> oh my gosh! I'm old enough to remember that. Uh, you know, at the University of Virginia where I trained Paul, and I'm sure you had the same adage that was cast about. But you know, the only thing wrong with every other night call was you missed 50 percent of the good nights. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what they would say. Yes, right, right. You are correct, Chris. Yeah, but we convinced ourselves that that was somehow healthy. Uh, I, I think I think the science doesn't support that today. No, not at all. And uh, fortunately, we've made some some positive changes in that regard, and uh, and things are a little better. But you know, thinking about it, it sure seems like neurosurgery requires sort of this uber level of uh, commitment, not unlike being a, uh, a virtuoso pianist or a concert violinist, that it would be all-consuming. Uh, is that true in your experience? I think so. Um, you know, it, it requires an incredible uh, commitment and attention to detail because, you know, after all, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to make a mistake. I mean, this is why we train for seven, eight years yes. uh, learning how to, how to apply the trade. And um, so, it, it needs an enormous amount of practice. What is the, I can't remember Malcolm. Uh, 10,000 hours. Gladwell, exactly, yeah. 10,000 hours that he quotes uh, like a concert pianist or violinist. So, yeah, we put in all those kind of hours uh, uh, training so that when we finish, and, that, and now I'm sort of uh, tasked with making sure that my trainees are safe you know, for the public when they come out and practice neurosurgery. How is training hours different now than when you were in? So now there is a rule that uh, residents cannot work more than 80 hours a week. Um, and that's true of all medical specialties. And there were many, many, many weeks when, when I was over, you know, 100 <laughs> no, hours sure. a week. And uh, so now it's 80 hours limited. Uh, you can't spend, you know, more than 24 hours in the hospital without a break. Uh, you, need, you need at least one 24-hour period, you know, out of the hospital, completely out of the hospital, at home. Um, you, you, you certainly can't take every other night call like, uh, like I did. So there are a number of safeguards built into the system. And, but, you know, part of the problem is when you go out in practice, when I'm doing a a, uh, a surgery. I mean, I can't just punch the clock at 6 p.m. and say, okay, can you tag me out here and ask my partner to finish the operation? I mean, if something's going wrong, right. I got to be, you know, be there to finish. 
and I can't leave until everything is safe and the operation is over with. So seems, there it, are. It seems like a math challenge too, because the residency is now the same length as it was when you trained, uh, but yet yes. you're about a fifty percent reduction in the amount of training hours. Yet the, the the content material hasn't gotten less complicated, has it? No, no, it hasn't. And in fact. You know, they've, they've done some studies since the institution of the 80-hour work week, as we call it. Yes. And, uh, you know, things aren't quite, the, the errors that were there before are still there. Mm. So the life is better for the residents, but it has not necessarily made, made things safer or better. Now, we've heard that the divorce rate in neurosurgery problems or programs is astronomical, or at least it used to be. What were the challenges yes. of being married during that and making it through? Well, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I think you have to be strong in your commitment to marriage, certainly when you start. And, uh, you know, my wife, God bless her, she is she's just an absolute saint. She fortunately was a critical care nurse in a neuro ICU unit oh, before wow. I married her. So she knew, yeah, she knew the life that uh, we were going to lead, at least during residency, and was prepared for it. You know, other other spouses, uh, male or female, are not prepared for that. And it can be a real, a real problem, especially when you are at, you know, at surgery, taking care of, you know, children and adults, and people come in and say, thank you so much. You are a god. You have, you have saved the life of my son. You're wonderful. <laughs> and then you go home, and it's like, you missed the Cub Scout meeting. Why were you not here for soccer practice? <laughs> yes, you know? yes, and yes. I, you know, and take the trash out while you're time out. Time and yeah. time again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I remember I met my wife, and I was doing an ambulatory ultrasound rotation. Oh, my. And I think I was home every day by wow. 3 o'clock. <laughs> and then right after that, I, I was an intern in the intensive, surgical intensive care unit. And I didn't see her for eight weeks at all. And that was <laughs> yeah, almost the exactly. end of our relationship. You know, she thought I'd, I'd lost interest. Oh. Um, but uh, those Do are you hear some of these stories. Some of these stories from, you know, for instance, Michael DeBakey, uh, yes. you know, at, uh, in Houston, uh, the residents would literally not leave the intensive care unit for a month. <laughs> and I, I remember hearing the story of how he fired one of his residents when he walked in there on January 2nd because uh, one of the residents was in an accident, a car accident, and it was in the paper. So he went to visit his wife on New Year's Eve. Perhaps it was Christmas Eve. And he literally was in a car accident. It was in the paper the next day. And when DeBakey showed up a couple of days later, he said, you're fired. You know, <laughs> I saw you left the hospital. Sorry, you broke the rules. Wow. <laughs> I, I heard he also fired a resident. I heard the story. It was six months at a time. He had to be up there. And his wife was having a baby and wouldn't let him leave the floor to go. But I don't know how true those are. But there were some real dictators leading programs in the past. So, so Paul, give, give our listeners a sense of what is the day in the life of a neurosurgeon like? Well, uh, so Chris, I will uh, get up uh, frequently at uh, 6, 6.30, have to be at work either. I, uh, I have meetings oftentimes before surgery. Surgery begins usually about 7 or 7.30. So some days I'll have meetings at 6 a.m. because in order to catch a surgeon, you either have to have the meeting at 6 or at 5 or 6 p.m. Um, I'll go in, I'll do surgery, um, uh, and uh, from probably 7.30 or 8 until 3 or 4, I'll come back to the office, answer emails, uh, letters, etc., um, round with the residents and or my nurse practitioners, and then usually get home around 7-ish uh, or so at night. And then other days, I see one day a week, I see patients in the office where I'll see perhaps 30 uh, patients or 35 patients uh, all day. Um, but most most days are in uh, in the operating room, and you know I when I'm on call, which happens every three or four weeks, I will be you know I have a pager or a cell phone that uh, where I get text messages, and I may have to go in at you know two o'clock in the morning and take care of somebody with a bad head injury or a bleed in the brain or something like that. Um, the surgeries vary. I don't do much spine surgery anymore, but they vary from a rather, you know, what we would call pedestrian discectomy, you know, kind of a, a oh, simple sure. surgical procedure, 
to clipping an intracranial aneurysm, which is just uh, frighteningly uh, um, you know, stressful, uh, where you know, if the aneurysm ruptures during surgery, the patient could die in a matter of a few minutes. So if you explain uh, to our listeners what, what that is, an aneurysm, and why it's such a challenge. Sure. So, uh, Tom, an aneurysm is a, uh, a, uh, a blister on a blood vessel at the base of the brain. Uh, it forms uh, due to, you know, atherosclerosis, uh, hypertension, and these blisters will occasionally pop. And when they pop, about 45% of the people die within a few days. Mm. Uh, those that survive uh, have to have the aneurysm secured either with a clip, which is where we put a tiny little titanium clip that is spring-loaded at the base of the aneurysm, at the base of this little blister, to keep it from bleeding again. Or we go from the inside, from the arterial side, where a practitioner will put a catheter in the groin, snake it all the way up into the brain, and fill the blister with tiny little coils to keep blood from getting in there. So, and so I do that by opening the head, opening the skin and the skull and with the patient under general anesthesia and using an operating microscope dissecting down through the brain, underneath the brain really, exposing the aneurysm and then very gently placing this clip on. And it could pop when you put the clip on, it could pop before you get there. I've had all of that uh, happen in various stages. And then when I'm training someone to do that, I have to kind of be ready to take over instantly or make sure I can uh, fix whatever he or she wow. doesn't do correctly. So. so when you're doing this procedure on the base of the brain, what physical position is the patient in that you can be doing this? Because I'm imagining you being like Michelangelo working on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, and that's not a very comfortable position to work in. No. So the person is supine, meaning on their back, on the operating table, with the head in a frame, so to speak. So it's a three-point pin fixation that once the person goes to sleep, we put their head in this rigid frame and make sure it doesn't move whatsoever. And then we clip a little bit of hair and then start going in. So are you working up? Are you working in front of you? Are you working beneath you? Yes, good question. I am sitting during most of these cases in a chair and um, I have sometimes an armrest on each side of the chair ah. and am gently, uh, you know, when I'm under the microscope, uh, I want to make sure that my arms are supported and that I, you know, have uh, very delicate movements that I don't get bumped. I'm, I'm working through a microscope that costs as much as my house. I mean, it's an expensive <laughs> piece of equipment in every operating room. And is the surface you're working on, is it like uh, vertically oriented in front of you? Is it an angle? Is it horizontal? You know, the base of the brain? Usually horizontal. Yeah. So we'll, we'll turn the head perhaps 45 degrees from, you know, if the patient were laying supine with the head looking straight up, to get to most aneurysms, we'll turn the head 45 degrees or so and then angle it down a little bit towards the floor. Okay. That makes sense. And you really operate about four days a week? Uh, not anymore. I, I used to, uh, but as, uh, as an administrator, you know, as ah, the head mm. of the department, I, I've had to take more time for, you know, meetings, administrative issues. I, my true love is, you know, is taking care of patients and, uh, and teaching. But uh, I have to do, unfortunately, other, <laughs> or fortunately, other things to kind of move the program forward. So, Paul, it'd be fair to say that you're an academic neurosurgeon. Um, how would your life that you've just described it differ from uh, a, a private practice neurosurgeon that our listeners might encounter in middle America? Sure. So, uh, so Chris, my, um, my day is uh, rather specialized. So as a neurosurgeon in, uh, in academic practice, I specialize in uh, tumors at the base of the skull and cerebrovascular disease and tumors in general. So I'm a, a very kind of niche uh, practice. In addition, I uh, have to train residents. So I will have assistants with me during the case. Now, a practitioner in private practice will have assistants as well, usually PAs, uh, nurse practitioners. But I, I will have a resident that I'm teaching how to do it. So the case may take a little longer because I'm saying, okay, here is the way you mm. do this. And I gently show them uh, how to do things so that uh, 
you know, it's like an apprenticeship, as you know, when you start out, you really don't do much. And when you finish, you know, a few months before you finish, I have to make sure that that surgeon is able to do everything. Otherwise, I can't certify him as, as being able to go into the public. So that takes a particular amount of time. I, um, I also uh, teach medical students. So I spend a certain number of hours every, every month teaching both, uh, you know, first and second year medical students and then students in the later years. And uh, I have to sort of run a department. I have research physicians that work with us um, and a number of other physicians in, in various uh, um, specialties. Paul, we're going to take a break right now. But when we come back, I want to talk about how being a Catholic uh, makes a difference in how you practice medicine. And we'll be back shortly after the break here on Dr. Doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not. And their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. We're back with Dr. Paul Camerata talking about the mysteries of the Catholic neurosurgeon and neurosurgery. And since we inserted that word Catholic there, Paul, I'm wondering, how does being Catholic uh, affect how you practice neurosurgery? Well, that's, that's a good question. I, uh, I'm constantly uh, trying to, to remember that I am, you know, first and foremost called to to know, love uh, God, and you know, and to be with Him in eternity for this life and the next, and to bring others to to the same to the same place. And so, it's easy to forget that, you know, when you're caught up in your daily practice and running from surgery to surgery and mm-hmm. patient to patient. So I, I have to I I try. There's a prayer that is uh, that I I learned a couple of years ago from a Catholic physician saint. It's a saint that nobody here, you know, has heard of. Uh, very few people have heard of. He's an Italian, and his name is Saint uh, Riccardo Pampuri, P-A-M-P-U-R-I. Hmm. Um, anyway, he uh, uh, he was a physician. Uh, I learned about him. Uh, Tom, you'd be interested to know. I saw a statue of him in a church in Rochester. So <laughs> Rochester, right Minnesota. Where? Yeah. Is it is it St. John the Evangelist? Is that the name of That's the church? That's the church right there, next uh, to Catholic the mail church? building. Yeah. Yeah, it's where I used to go to Daily yeah, Mass so, at five o'clock on days when I could. Yeah, so uh there uh, the pastor there, uh, who used to be the pastor, I think he still is, uh had a, a miraculous healing from prostate cancer after he prayed to this saint. <laughs> and so he put a statue, actually oh. Monsignor Luigi Giussani of uh, Communion and Liberation yes. Yes. uh gave him this statue and so he put it in the back of church. So that's how I learned about him. Anyway, he wrote a letter to his sister, and he said in one little place in the letter, pray that neither self-indulgence nor pride nor any other evil passion prevent me from seeing in my patients Jesus who suffers and from healing and comforting him. Uh, Just oh, a little short you know, I love afterwards. that. It's Amen. just beautiful. Let me look that up. Yeah, and, that's beautiful. Yeah. And you pray that uh, when during the day? I usually pray it before I scrub on a on a particular on on any surgery. So I'll uh, as I'm going in, I you know because our tendency is you know especially I think I mentioned last yes. time I'm a carpenter, you just kind of go in, <laughs> you you look at the head and you just get to work. But it's uh, you you got to see past that and see that this is Jesus. You know that uh, you know you see somebody in the middle of the night who's a drug addict and got involved in an altercation and they have a bad head injury. And it's like well this is. This is Jesus. I can't let pride or, you know, self-indulgence or anything keep me from seeing that this is Jesus and trying to heal him, you know. Well, wow, that's beautiful. And I think it's a, yeah, so I, I pray, you know, I, I, uh, I try and pray the Angelus every day at noon. I try and go to Mass uh, every day. And, and with my schedule, that takes a, you know, you you got to basically start, my spiritual director says you Every weekend, I get together, and I literally look at the week, and I say, okay, Mass at 6.30 at uh, this church on Monday. Tuesday, Mass at 6.30 p.m. at this church, because my wow. schedule goes starts early, whatever. So I, I try to do it. I, You know, I don't 
succeed by any means every week, but I, I get it on the schedule at least. You know, somebody says, you know, you put time on your schedule for the most mundane things. Can you not put time on your schedule to pray or to meet Jesus yes. in, the, in the Eucharist? Yes. You know, so. so I try and do that. Well, Paul, and thank I you. Know uh, I could tell th- you what. Thank you very much yeah. for making Tom and I feel like lazy sots. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, no. no. Speak for yourself. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I try, I try, I have a, you know, there's the app, the Mass Times app. You know, you can literally. Yes, it is I great. know what, what time every Mass is everywhere in the city, the latest and the earliest, and, you know, where you can make it, at, you know, from work, et cetera. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm also blessed in that my kids are out of the house, they're not here, and so I, I don't have to be back at a soccer game at 5 p.m. or something like that and I just, sure. I'll ask my wife hey is it okay if I drop down to the uh, Little Sisters of the Lamb for 6.30 Mass this evening I'll be home at 8 she'll generally say okay and <laughs> and that's that so, so Paul uh, present company excluded but it could be said that surgeons often have a pretty healthy ego um, h- how do you reconcile maybe some of your colleagues who are perhaps not quite as um, heaven, heaven-minded as you. What what does that look like in your collegial interactions? Well, it's a really good question, and and I I'm not exempt from that at all. I mean, we're we're all prideful, and and you know to do what what we do, hmm. you know, taking care of patients. Um, you know, even as a neurosurgeon, you gotta you've got to have some confidence to deal with these serious problems. Otherwise, uh, you, you would never tackle them in the first place. So. Hmm. Um, you know, but, but it gets out of hand very easily. Like I told you, you know, you're constantly being told at work, you've saved my son, you've saved my daughter, you're very, you know, uh, but, but you, you gotta have some humility. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, um, and, and I, I know that many of my colleagues, uh, are, you know, that's a virtue that, uh, that we don't share. So I, I, um, I'm giving a talk as a, um, I was elected president of a, of an organization uh, in neurosurgery, and I'm preparing my, you know, presidential address, and it's going to be something about, you know, the virtue of humility and, uh, and how to outstand that. Good for I, we'll you. We'll see how that's going to be re- received. You know, I don't know. Oh, Paul. So, Paul, in neurosurgery, what are the greatest ethical challenges facing you today? Um, so we've got several. You know, one would be people constantly asking us to transplant uh, fetal tissue, you know, to, uh, to use fetal tissue to heal neurologic oh, disease, sure. like Parkinson's, ALS, uh, stroke, etc. cetera. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's the, the brain death issue and, uh, and uh, medically assisted suicide. Um, Why would you, you know, be involved have, with that as a neurosurgeon? Well, w- well, we have patients that are critically ill. I mean, if you read uh, one, one of them there was, that was in the news here a few years ago was a young woman, um, I want to say a teenager, maybe now she was probably in her 20s or 30s, and uh, had a glioblastoma. Oh, Brittany, what's terrible, her name? Yes. yes. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's a terrible illness. It's a terrible way to die. It's not usually not terribly painful, but uh, you just, you become more and more neurologically impaired. And so, you know, I do have patients that, uh, you know, will ask for assistance. They, they've never asked me, you know, up front, but I'm sure they, they you, you hear of somebody that goes home and hospice was called and they started giving them, you know, pain. And within two days of starting the morphine, they're dead. And it's oh. like, well, yeah, you know, it's a slippery slope, you know. Yes. I, I had a person once who was a C2 quad, what that means is a, you know, a, a, a spinal cord injury at the most, at the highest place in the spinal cord where you, you barely have any breathing left and you can't move your arms or legs. And this poor gentleman was in his 70s or 80s and, uh, and uh, his sisters discussed this with the palliative care team and they took him off all food, nutrition, everything, Ugh. and uh, we're in a room with them. And, and I walked in one day, and I said, well, where's the, where's the IV? Where's the, I mean, you can't let your brother starve. I, mean, I didn't say it in front of him, but I was just flabbergasted mm. at, uh, you know, what goes on sometimes uh, out of your eyesight uh, in patients that you had been caring for. So it's, uh, it's very important that we do things like get young physicians, medical students trained ethically, you know, like the Catholic med student boot camp and the 
uh, in uh, Mandalayan and yes. some of the other things that the CMA is doing. And, and so uh, as a local group, you know, we have a, a local Catholic Medical Association group at uh, KU and uh, University of Missouri, Kansas City, which is also here. We get together and <laughs> talk about these things. Yeah. So what what is your view on brain death? Is that something that you test for yourself on patients? So, yeah, good question. So for me, it used to be, so, so to speak, a, a no-brainer. I mean, <laughs> our, 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 our. <laughs> um, our, yeah. So it, the brain death criteria were established many years ago by the Harvard group uh, back in the, in the 80s, I think it was. Oh, in the 80s, okay. Yeah, 68. Yeah, yeah, no, you, you're, I think you're right. I think it was 68 and then, uh, and then refer, affirmed a few years later. But they, you know, the loss of all, the irreversible loss of all brainstem reflexes and cortical activity and wake activity, et cetera. And, you know, once that, is determined irreversible. Your, you know, the, the name brain death has has come to uh, describe this. However, if you talk to some ethicists, uh, in particular, uh, uh, brother uh, or father Nicanor Ostriaco um, oh, yeah, from father Providence. Uh, yeah, we know him. He's yeah, been on the show twice. Yeah, fabulous guy. Yeah, so he he's written a couple of really salient articles with Aquinas, uh, Aristotle. You look back at their definition of you know death. Uh, the separation of the soul from the body. And when does that happen? Well, when the body loses its integrity. It's kind of the strict definition. It's bodily integrity. And people who are brain dead, as long as oxygen is provided and their heart continues beating, they don't really lose their bodily integrity. In fact, uh, Father Nicanor Ostriaco wrote that article about, uh, I can't remember the young woman's name, but, uh, you know, that the brain was the size of a plum after many years uh, on the ventilator, but the body was completely you know, uh, integral and had not, you know, begun to deteriorate or move toward toward uh, uh, entropy or toward toward uh, separation, you know. So is there really such a thing as brain death? I mean, that's a really good question. And should we be, you know, it would revolutionize or change completely our, you know, or, or should we have a criteria that is not called brain death, but that is called irreversible fatal brain injury and then you determine ethically whether it is appropriate to go ahead and harvest organs for, for people so that uh, people can live with a new heart, you know, for instance. It would change our, our organ and tissue, you know, donation uh, revolution. It would revolutionize it, you know, because, because with the past 50 years, there has been the concept of, of brain death. And we have uh, gone ahead with, uh, with organ transplantation. Well, that's why the idea came about, wasn't it, of brain death, was to get organ donors. Exactly was to get organ donors, yeah. It's a slippery slope, you know. Nowadays, that's another area where ethically, as neurosurgeons, we're involved. You have somebody that's not particularly brain dead, but their brain is irreversibly injured. Like, it is, you know, injured beyond any hope of actually recovering and leaving the hospital. So if you took them then off of a you, ventilator, would they die? Exactly. Every single one of these what, patients, is that the case? Uh, well, so that's the question. And, and nowadays, we don't, you know, harvest the organs until they die. What will happen is they'll take them off the ventilator, predicting that within, you know, a few minutes to a few hours, they will die. And they will sometimes go right down to the, to the holding area before surgery, wait until death occurs, and then rush into the operating room to, to harvest the organs. Because if you wait too long, obviously the, the uh, kidneys and the heart suffers so much ischemia, they can't sure. be used. And so the question is, do you take them before they die? And that is a real sticky point. You know? Well, you know, listening to you, uh, I'm glad that there are medical students that are learning these things from you and not from other people. Tom and I have had a chance to talk to medical students from all different walks of, of life. What have you seen, if anything, that's different today in medical students versus maybe earlier in your career with medical students and some of these difficult issues? Well, yeah, that's a really good question. There are um, <clears throat> uh, polarization, I should say. There's quite a bit of polarization. I, I see, you know, I spend a lot of time with the Catholic med students, but uh, we have a group here called Jayhawks for Life, and uh, they'll put out a, yeah, they'll put out a, uh, you know, a message, you know, hey, we're all getting together for a lecture, uh, you know, somebody's coming in for Students for Life of America to talk about uh, the abortion issue, and they'll get all kinds of nasty emails from the other side, mm -hmm. from, you know, students who, who are very, very pro-choice, and 
Um, so it's, uh, you know, it becomes a free speech issue at that point. You know, what are we going to be allowed to do and how can we congregate uh, at the medical school? But there, uh, you know, there, it's, you know, we, it's been predicted for the past, I don't know how many years as medicine has changed that fewer and fewer people are going to want to go into medicine. I, I really don't see that. I mean, mm-hmm. these, these kids are profoundly, uh, you know, inspired to, to help uh, others, regardless of how much they're going to be paid, mm-hmm. you know, uh, really are, uh, you know, just a virtuous group of, uh, of young men and women who really want to do the right thing, in my opinion. Well, that's certainly comforting. You know, in the two minutes or so that we have left, what, what does the future of neurosurgery as a specialty look like if we, you know, sort of near term and long term? What does that look like from your perspective? Well, things are becoming much more minimally invasive. So the old, you know, the old, uh, uh, you know, story or a picture of a surgeon, you know, cracking the head open with a saw. I mean, well, we still do that, but uh, the the future is becoming much more minimally invasive. We are taking, uh, you know, catheters through the arteries to cure almost all aneurysms now without opening the head. We are curing uh, epilepsy and brain tumors now uh, with minimally invasive laser procedures just through a tiny opening in the skull. And one of the the most amazing things that we're beginning to use is something called focused ultrasound, where literally you can lesion the brain, you can treat tumors, uh, and and maybe even in the future uh, treat Alzheimer's disease. They're beginning trials for that using a incisionless surgery. It's basically a focused ultrasound probes that we place over the scalp and uh, using an MRI guided technology can literally focus the ultrasound in various wow. places to treat lesions. It's, it's, uh, oh it's really my fascinating. Goodness. That's incredible. That is remarkable. Well, God is good. And if somebody wants to learn more about neurosurgery and their advances and whether or not this Catholic medical student should go into it, are there any good resources you recommend? Yes. So um, the, the probably the, the biggest resource that we have is uh, uh, an organization, our national organization, called uh, the American Association of Neurological Surgery, AANS.org. And it has a number of, a uh, lot of information for patients uh, and a lot of uh, different uh, publications uh, that you can look at. Another uh, organization, another one of our national organizations would be CNS.org, the Congress of Neurological Surgeons. So AANS.org and CNS.org are our two major societies concerned with education. There's a lot of public information there. Paul Camerati, it's been a true joy to have you with us here on Dr. Doctor. Thanks for being with us. I suspect we'll have you on again for one of your good areas of expertise. Tom and Chris, you guys do an amazing service. Thank you so much for everything on Dr. Doctor, and thanks for being invited. Thank you, and God bless. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and it is time once again for the answer to our medical trivia question. And this one was that Jeopardy category, 1960s television. So what early medical television series featured a neurosurgeon that had an opening scene that included a hand Not with a body, just the hand, writing five symbols on a chalkboard representing man, woman, birth, death, and infinity. It's not Marcus Welby. It's not, although that's the answer to a different trivia question. (laughs) Uh, But this show was uh, Ben Casey. It aired from 1961 to 1966, and he was, uh, well, he portrayed uh, a neurosurgeon. Uh. So this probably got people thinking about, you know, brain surgeons, it's like, these guys are incredible, and they were almost all men. There are some now some women that do it, but like Paul said, it's like being a concert pianist or violinist. Mm. I mean, you devote your entire life to it. I remember reading, and it might have been in Malcolm Gladwell's book that Paul referred to, that somebody went up to, I think it was Itzhak Perlman, and said, I would give up everything to play like you. And his response was, I have given up everything to play like me. Yeah, thinking about the years of training. But I'll tell you what, though. I've been talking to physicians like you have for 25-plus years, and I think I can sit here and say I've never listened to a neurosurgeon speak so uh, humbly and so uh, really so selfless 
about himself, about his career, and to be so patient-focused as Dr. Paul Camarada, our last guest. He was just remarkable. Well, then I have a surprise for you because we're going to be doing two shows coming up on the pro and cons of whether or not brain death is really death. Uh. And so for one of those episodes, I have enlisted a neurosurgeon from Georgia who is just as self-effacing, <laughs> an incredibly generous man. He's named, named Richard Rowe, who's going to talk to us about how neurosurgeons determine if there is irreversible brain damage. And, and he is another incredible one. And you know, a common thread running through all these incredible professionals that we talk to is, among other things, membership in the Catholic Medical Association. Yes, indeed, because I like to think that we are Catholics who happen to be physicians, not mm. physicians who happen to be Catholic. So listeners, uh, I would challenge you, the next time you see your physician, regardless of their specialty, ask them if they're a member of the CMA, and if they're not, ask them why not, and tell them you'd prefer that they're members. You know, I love meeting people like Dr. Camarada. It helps inspire me to be a better physician, and I am definitely going to look up that prayer he mentioned from St. Ricardo Pampuri. That was beautiful. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's something else that I do um, right before I uh, operate on every one of my patients, but that may take the place of what I've been doing. <laughs> but, you know, listening to him talk, I was reminded of when I was a medical student and this idea that it, it, it is noble to try to help people, yes. even if it means uh, a considerable degree of self-sacrifice. And the better you get at it, the more humble you become because you, you realize you're, you're not in charge. Uh, but the chance to step into people's lives is, is why we do this. It's why medicine is such a great profession. Amen. And thanks to all you listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash Dr. And be sure to rate and review our show. It helps new listeners find us. And please send us questions or tell us something that you've heard and how it changed your life. We want to know and we want to hear from you. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing the healing hands of chiropractic medicine with Dr. Adam Osanga. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.